promised land. And Moses commissions 12 men, sends them out to spy out the land. And he says, spy out the land and find out if it's good. Find out if it's full of fruit. Find out if it's a great place to dwell. Tell us about the land. So they go in and they spend 40 days spying out the land. Well, let's go to verse 25. We'll just start there. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh uh, in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community that they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. Now, the fruit it produced was it took two men and a pole between them just to carry a a thing of grapes back. That's how lush the land was, how fruitful it was. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. Now, the sons of Anak, or Anak, were uh, of the Nephilim. In some translations, it will say that. The, the, the sons of the Nephilim, the giants, they were giants. But there's giants in the land. These 12 men that went in, 10 came back with a bad report. They came back with a report of facts. Here's some facts. The facts are, man, there's just unbelievable amounts of of produce and, and, and lusciousness and a place to dwell and a place to go. But the inhabitants are frightening. The inhabitants of the land are scary. There's even giants in the land. And this was the determination that they came to. And we are grasshoppers compared to them in our own eyes and in theirs also. Very important to think about that. Of the 12 that went in, 10 came back with this report. We are but grasshoppers in our own eyes. It'd be one thing if they said, we're grasshoppers in comparison to size to them. You see, because a grasshopper is still a force to be reckoned with. But that's not what they were saying. They were saying we were, we were but grasshoppers in our own eyes. We discredited who we are and who God says we are and what God has called us to be and what God has commissioned us to do. We've discredited all of that because of what our eyes saw over here and we choose to believe this. But two of them said we can do it. We can go in. We can take the land. And those two were Joshua and Caleb. Now, Joshua was already known as a mighty uh, warrior. He had fought in numbers of battles. 
we all probably learned the song if you went to Sunday school growing up, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. You know, uh, Joshua led him in battle against Jericho. He led him in the battle of Ai as well. Now think of those two different battles. One was God told him to do it. The other one is he did not tell him to do it. They just chose to do it. One of them, the walls just fell down after seven days of marching and praising God. The other one was a battle that continued and was maybe not going to make it, maybe going to make it. And, uh, you know, the, the point being, know which battles are from God for you and which ones God is saying stay away from. Now, this is directed to us all, but I want it to speak specifically to fathers today as leaders in your home. Uh, Joshua, also, the reason his picture of saying this land is for our taking. Joshua maintained, they were all, remember what I said, they were all 12 men of God. They were all 12 selected because of their statue, because of their stature, because of who they were and their connections and, and how they had displayed themselves in throughout life. But what made Joshua and Caleb different? What made them see it different? They all saw the same thing. They all had the same experience. They saw it differently. One is Joshua always stayed at the tent of meeting. Moses would go in to meet with God, and Joshua would stay there at his side. Joshua desired intimacy with the Father. He desired intimacy with God. See, his identity was more intimate intimacy with his Father than it was with who he was as a warrior, who he was as a person, who he was as, you know, in the sight of Israel, and definitely who he was in the sight of of his enemies. That's very important. Who are you in the sight of your enemies? Just a little side note, obviously David is a great example of that as well when David faced Goliath. Who was David in the sight of Goliath? In the sight of his enemies. Goliath says to him, what, do you, what am I, a dog, that you send out a kid with sticks? David was unfazed by that. He was unfazed by how his enemies saw him. He was only fazed by his intimacy with God, which said, this is who I am. And I've been sent by God. And this is who my father says I am. Now, this is so important, fathers. Your children get a lot of their identity by who you say they are. Your children get a tremendous amount of, of their life's character by what they see their dad display in the way of character. I think this about fathers, and those of you that are 
dads of young children, those of you that, that are still dads of older children, those of you who will be one day be dads, listen carefully. What your children see you do is a thousand times more important than, or more important than telling them a thousand times how you want them to do. You might say to your children, well, church is important. You and your mom go to church. Mom likes church. You should go to the church. Many dads send the, the, the kids with, with mom and they go to church. And they can't figure out why their kids don't like church. But a family where the dad says, we're going to church because we're going to meet God there, those kids are amazingly impacted by that. You might tell your sons and your daughters a thousand times how to be, what to be, how not to be. You'll have more of an impact on them if they see you reading your Bible or if they see you going alone into a room to meet with God and to pray. That will impact their life so much more than telling them a thousand times something they should do, you know. And then if they see you do that, uh, then they'll probably listen to you and you'll only have to tell them once. Now, how you see things is so important. Again, these 12 men, they go into the, the promised land. They scout it out for 40 days. They come back. One, two with good reports. We can do this. God is with us. And, and ten with an evil report or a bad report saying, oh, there's, there's giants in the land. How you see something can cost you. It cost Israel a generation. These guys came back and they sowed into the heart of Israel it says that once they gave their report, there's giants in the land. Oh, man, we are but grasshoppers in our own eyes and in their sight. That, that all of Israel were so disconcerted over it. And, and they, they wept all night long going, oh, man, we've spent 40 years in the wilderness and it's come to this. This is what it's come to. Well, whatever. Thanks, Bob, for correcting me in front of all my peeps. Huh? Yeah, they would spend 40 years because of that. Um, but they say, we, we've come to this promised land, and, uh, you know, we've been, in the, we've been in the wilderness all this time, and this is what we've come to. And, and they wept because they believed the evil report. Even though the two that God magnified in their midst said, no, don't listen to them. We can do this. God is with us. It was too late. The seed had been sown. You know, the Bible says there's six things that God hates. Seven. That he, and seven that, how's that go, Bob? <laughs> in Proverbs 6, Let's take a quick look at that. 
Yeah. The Holman's a good translation. I've been reading that one lately. You kind of got me onto that, Bob. Barry got me into this Bible app. It was pretty good. Except now every day a new, new scripture comes up that I feel obligated to read. Because it won't leave my phone until I've pressed it and read it. <laughs> I like that. Persistence of the Word of God to get to you. Uh, Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 16, it goes like this. There are six things the Lord hates, no seven things he detests. Now, we know God to be a God of love, right? God's a God of love. And here it says, no, there's some things he hates. Very clear. He hates these things. He doesn't regard them as like, I wish you wouldn't do that. You know, this would not be preferable. I'd prefer you not to do... He's just, no. He's saying, hey, I want you to hear this. I hate this stuff. All right. Pretty heavy duty is what I'm trying to get at. Uh, There are six things the Lord hates. No, seven things he detests. Haughty eyes or uh, a proud spirit. A lying tongue. Hands that kill the innocent. He hates abortion. He hates liars. He hates a, a lying tongue that uh, I think actually looking into that gives testimony, false testimony uh, against someone. A heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies. Well, there that is. So maybe I had that off a little bit. A false witness who pours out lies and a person who sows discord in a family. I've always found that interesting. I mean, this, these are pretty pretty heady things. And then at the end, he says, I detest when you sow discord in a family. I, I don't know. You've got to think on that a little bit. Think of ways that you might sow discord. You know, the Bible says that there's nothing more beautiful than the brethren dwelling together in unity. And yet... Here he's saying, but in that unity, you can disturb unity by sowing discord. Well, that kind of comes in all kinds of forms. You might say, in your, in your own household, uh, the children have already left, so I'm going to talk about them. But as children, we, we, uh, we idolize our parents. We, we idolize our fathers. And then we get more maturity. And then... We're doing a project with our dad, and we think, well, there's a better way to do this than that. And there probably is. And the best way for you to do that is, hey, let me try my hand at that. But most of the times, it's not in our hearts of maturity to know how to do that. I believe immaturity sows discord much more than maturity. Immaturity says... Well, my dad's an idiot. Look at how he's doing that. He doesn't know how to do that properly. He may not take it that far. Uh, You may say, um, even worse, to your brother now or your sister and say, you know, dad really doesn't know what he's doing. Isn't that what these ten people were saying about their father to the household of Israel? God took us through the wilderness and brought us to the promised land. 
And now this, is this what we've come to? God really doesn't know how to do this. He really doesn't know what he's doing. And it went immediately into the hearts of Israel, all of the camp of Israel. It said they were, they were shaken by it, and they believed the bad report. What did we do about it? The only thing I can do about it in my own life is continue to seek God, continue to ask Him to make me a man of faith and not a man of discord. You see, I believe discord is simply the opposite of faith. I think pointing out somebody's faults and flaws rather than seeing them in faith is uh, discord. And when I share that flaw, the Bible says love causes us to uh, cover a multitude of flaws. You know, how many of you look on your little children? We, we had one come up here and take over the platform a few minutes ago. During the jokes, I, I really know they, or was that announcements? I'm not sure, but definitely wanted to take over the joke session. Um, how many looked at that and went, that kid, get him off of there. I think very few, except their grandma. <laughs> She's like, very few, most of them went, oh, isn't that cute? Why? Because there's love in our hearts for children. And when there's love in your heart, there's room for them to do things that are a little bit out of the ordinary. They'll learn, you know, eventually when mom grabs them by the foot and drags them back, that they're like, I don't prefer skin knees. I'm not going to do that again. I think the opposite of faith would be to f- see flaws. And when you see flaws, you most likely share those flaws with someone, with others. Uh, in your marriage, it's, it's easy, you know. Well, I'm upset with you because of this. That's not usually the way I go about doing that. I usually go, why are you so grouchy today? You know, and I I never know what to expect for a comeback, but it's usually like, I'm not the one that's grouchy, it's you. Discord's so vital. It's vital in in the family unit. It's so important that husband and wife stay in unity Husband and wife stay in faith pictures of one another. It's important to have faith pictures uh, of your spouse. You know, you ladies have pictures of your husbands that are like, he's a man of God. I know that the land is speaking to you. No, there's, there's flaws. Yeah, there is. But a faith picture sees through God's eyes, you can take the land, all right? Um, faith pictures are vital. Faith pictures of your children are vital. Uh, faith pictures of your family is are vital. You know, you don't want to tell your children 
ever that your mother or your father say something negative about them to your children. You just don't do that. When you are a part of a church and you see something uh, that's, you know, not up to par in church, the way to handle that is not to tell everybody else. It's just important. Don't sow uh, disunity. God detests it. So what do you do? Well, then we, we kind of cover it in the way of, of uh, gossip. You know, as pastor, I, I get to experience some of that once in a while. You know, uh, I saw this thing a while back on, on Facebook. It said you had these five choices. Be invisible, be super, fly, be able to fly, be able to do this, be able to do that. What would you choose? And my first thought was I'd like to be invisible. And I thought, well, Why? Well, I'd like to hear what people have to say about me. And then my next thought immediately following that is, no, you don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know. I remember the, the day I became a Christian, I walked into this church. The pastor's up there, and he tells this joke. I mean, I'm blown away. I don't know what to I I'm just in shock. Number one, I'm coming out of a time of living in the woods and not being around people at all. And now all of a sudden I'm in this church filled with people and this pastor gets up and tells this joke. And it's a stupid joke. You know, it's a pastor joke. And he laughs louder than anybody. And I remember looking at the man and saying, what an egotist. Number one, it wasn't a funny joke. Number two, look at him up there. Very few seconds go by. A dynamic happens in the spirit. I experience God. I don't wait for an altar call. I just simply say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Come into my life. Save me. And he did right there. He saved me in that moment. Something transformed me. According to his word, I was made a new creation in Christ Jesus. And within just a few minutes, the pastor's back up there again. And I'm going, man, he's a wonderful guy. Just like that. Just like that. You know, the series that that Vic was teaching on uh, faith, not feelings, or... Whatever the title of that was. <laughs> anyway, um, that's a perfect display of that. One moment I felt this way. The next minute, through the eyes of Jesus, I felt this way and saw things differently. It's so important that we keep a faith picture. Even professional athletes develop faith pictures. Uh, for example, basketball players, they will visualize over and over and over and over making that shot, making that basket, making that shot, making that basket. And they say that that's just almost as important as actual practicing it. 
to have that visual in your mind. I believe when these 12 went into the promised land and scouted it out, two of them already had a faith picture. Ten of them did not. Ten of them went in. They all served the same God. They all lived in the same household of God. They were all had gone through the wilderness experience together. But I believe ten of them did not go in with a faith picture already set in their hearts of who God is to them and have it set in in their faith. And it affected them and it cost them. When you do not see things through faith and when you speak those things, it has a cost to you and a cost to others can set you back for 39 years. Is that right, Bob? Set it back 39 years? 38 or 39. A generation is what I wrote. Uh, Because that's the way I read it. Okay. How do you develop faith pictures? Ask God to, in prayer, go to the tent of meeting, be in prayer with Him, And ask him specifically, I want to see my son. I want to see my daughter. I want to see my wife. I want to see my family. You know, the the church today has erred in its idea of what a faith picture is. We think a faith picture is a bold confession blended together, and they are. But we think of it in, in terms of a new Acura. No, don't do that. Don't Don't trivialize. The power of God to a material thing. God wants to bless you with material things. Don't trivialize the power of your faith to trivial materialistic things. Apply them to people. Apply them to the things created that were created in His image to give glory to Him. So a faith picture is, God gave me these children. And I'm going to speak my faith picture over them. Okay, Dad, you listening? Come here, you little man of God. You can go into Walmart and hear exactly the world difference. You know, in fact, go to Walmart and just hang out in the aisles, especially near the toy sections or the, the candy sections, and listen to the comments made by parents and go, all right, Lord, exact opposite of that. I was one time in Walmart, and I heard this woman hollering for her husband. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And he's on the other side, and he can kind of see through. And where she goes this way, he's kind of moving this way. And she kind of, where'd you go? And he goes back this way. And the whole time he's muttering, that stupid woman, I hate her. I hate her. I'm like, yikes. I'm getting out of here before the guns come out. You know, what what a terrible existence. You know, what a terrible existence when you say things out of frustration to your children. You little demon, you little gremlin, you little, uh, you know, whatever you might say. You little stinker, you know, in other words. But uh, take a proactive place. God, give me a faith picture. There's been words spoken over your life when you were young, perhaps, or presently. Pray into those words. 
praying to him. God, you said this about me. I'm not giving up on it. You haven't given up on it. I'm not giving up on it. So the ten people, they said, oh, we're giving up on this picture. We're giving up on this plan. Caleb said, don't give up on it. And he tried to make an appeal, but too late. The seed had been sown. The seed of discord can be sown at such a young age into a child. You can have such a devastating effect on a young child that they grow up going, well, my dad doesn't love me. My dad's angry at me. My dad doesn't think I can do anything. Can't you do anything right? My dad doesn't think I can do anything right. You know, my dad wasn't a man of many words. He expected me to just kind of know it. And I don't know why. Because it worked a lot better for me if he told me ahead of time what to expect. I remember when I was probably six years old, he took me hunting. He set me on the, on the horse, and we look at this mountain, and he says, take that horse up the mountain, and he grabbed onto the tail so that I'd take the horse up the mountain and just pull him on up. Well, I'm like, I ain't doing that. And so he didn't tell me what to expect. Don't worry about it. The horse will do it. The horse will be fine. He's just going to take us up there. He didn't, he didn't do any of that. He just noticed I wasn't taking the horse, so he went kapow on the horse's backside, and up we went, and I was scared to death. Just a few seconds of explanation would have helped me. It's taken me, obviously, I'm still not over it. So, all right, quickly, let's change course here just a little bit. Uh, We've talked about Joshua and Caleb and the promised land. I want to talk about Joseph just a little bit as we go with this. Joseph also. um, For Father's Day, I'm going to call this the close does not make the man. Joseph was a man of many coats. In fact, as he was growing up, he was sort of special to his father. You know, his father had 12 sons, two wives. Uh, Ten of those sons were by the first wife, Leah, and two by Rachel. And he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So that's obviously a setup for a family dynamic that's not healthy. And then he shows favoritism even more because he gives Joseph a special coat of many colors. How many of us know the story of the many-colored coat that Joseph, uh, that Jacob gave Joseph? And Joseph loved his coat. You know, this coat had long sleeves, went down over his hands. It was not a coat made for working in the fields. It was a coat for display, and he displayed it well in front of his brothers. I have my coat of many colors on. 
dad gave it to me. They all knew it. Now, that wasn't bad enough. It's not bad enough that there's favoritism. It's not about bad enough that he's the favorite son. It's not bad enough that it's all of this. But then God gives him a dream. And he says, in this dream, and he tells it to his family, in, his, in this dream, God showed me, you're all bowing down to me. And I have my coat of many colors on when you do it. I don't think he did it with guile in his heart. I really don't. I don't think he did it with pride in his heart. I think he just simply said, I had this dream, and here's it. He didn't make the coat. His father did. He didn't make himself special. His father did. So a day came, his father sends him out to check on his brothers. They're out tending the sheep. Why do you send the kid that doesn't already go out and do the work because he wears a special coat out to check on his brothers who are men that know how to do the work? Once more, a family dynamic that's just a setup. And it said that they saw him from afar. Here he comes, the kid with the coat. And they devised a plan, murder in their heart. Well, as the story goes, they didn't end up murdering him. They threw him in a pit, in a well. And then they saw these traders come by and they thought, we'll sell him into slavery. We'll just sell him. And we'll tell dad, we'll rip his coat up. And we'll tell dad that uh, a wild animal killed him. So they devised this plan. And so Joseph, who one day wearing a beautiful coat given to him by his father, suddenly finds himself on the auction block of slavery, being purchased, bought by someone else. Heathen people to come and serve in his house. But he displayed himself so greatly that he, he rose to the highest level in Potiphar's house. Potiphar bought him into slavery. Now he's got a new coat. He's got the, Potiphar made him head over everything in his household and he was wealthy because he said that everything Joseph touched prospered and blessed him. And the only thing that it says that he cared about was the food that he ate. The rest of all the issues of running his house he gave to Joseph. And Joseph's wife, or Potiphar's wife looked on Joseph and said, he's a good-looking guy. He's handsome, he's strong, he's well-built, he's been in the sun and he's tan. I want him. And she pursued him. Not once, but more. Continued to pursue him. And then in the last scene of that, at that time, it said that she went after him and said, come to my bed with me. He fled and left his coat behind. It's an interesting thing. Of all the sins we face as young men, the Bible is addressing this. It says, you know, resist, resist. 
Get on your weapons of warfare and resist. When it comes to lust, it says, don't resist. Flee. Run the opposite direction. Joseph fled, left his coat behind. She told a story about it that he tried to rape her. And immediately he was imprisoned. And his now a coat of elevation, a coat of of uh, honor, once again replaced now by a jacket of prisoners. Here's the interesting thing, and I'll sum it up with this. In all of those, it said one thing about Joseph. And we see the same thing with Joshua. It says this about him. The Lord was with them. Joseph was in prison, but the Lord was with him. Joseph was in slavery, but the Lord was with him. Joseph being planned on being murdered by his brothers, but the Lord was with him. And in all of those, I don't want to make a thing about Joseph right now as far as like, how did he feel? How did you feel when you were on the auction block, Joseph? Really? How do you think he felt? But the thing was, it says, the Lord was with him. Now, what does that mean? It means his character didn't change according to the coat that he had on. He was a place of great gifted, of honor. He was a place of, of slavery, a place of, once again, elevation, a place of prison, being a prisoner. And now, the head over all of jo- uh, Pharaoh's dominion. Second to none, except for Pharaoh. His character didn't change. Fathers, ask God, make me a man of character. That's what our children need more than anything else. Fathers in the home that are men with solid character and integrity. Let's close with this scripture. The righteous man who walks in integrity and lives life in accord with his godly beliefs, how blessed, happy, and spiritually secure are his children after him who have his example to follow. Well, that's my Father's Day message. I believe that we have men of great faith in this church. I believe we have men that are of true character and integrity in this church. And I'm excited to be associated with you in that.